Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been involved in the food industry in Europe and here in the U.S. for more than 20 years now. And every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scene and new ingredients and flavors they are experimenting with. If you are just joining today for the first time, last week, my guest was Chef Johnny Sparrow from Reverie in Washington, D.C. Please subscribe to the podcast to make sure that you are not missing any upcoming episodes. I have a special guest today. I am really pleased to welcome Chef Kim Alter from uh, Nightbird in San Francisco to the show. Besides describing the difficulties of opening a restaurant in San Francisco, Chef Kim Alter reflects on being a woman chef in 2019. The inspiration behind her themed menus at Nightbird and alien and fermentation being her latest obsessions. Hi, Chef. I'm really pleased to have you on Flavors Unknown. I do not have a lot of uh, women chefs, so it's a special moment for me. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you. Thank you. So you opened uh, your restaurant Nightbird and the bar Linden Room in San Francisco in 2016. Opening a restaurant in San Francisco seems to be a very difficult task. You even mentioned that it might be sometimes as difficult even more than opening a restaurant in New York. So what were the obstacles that you had to overcome? There were so many. I don't even know where to start, but I would have to, you know, it took me... <laughs> I want to say over uh, almost two years to physically open from the point where I like signed the lease and then the doors were open to the the public. And if you think about that, like if I was paying rent, which is an upwards of, you know, $15,000 a month, like how, how could a business even survive? So luckily I found great landlords who helped me and I didn't need to pay rent uh, until we were kind of like at least financially capable. And, you know, the city, like I'm in the middle of expanding. I got permits back in September of 2018. We are now what? It's it's August. And I'm still in the process. And they have quoted me till January of 2020 of going through permitting. And it's just for a 700 square foot space to expand my bar. And it's just like how, you know, if I was paying rent on that space without revenue coming in, how would that happen? So that, that would, I would say those are the, that's the main thing is just the length going through the, the city of San Francisco. Also, there's so much construction going on here that it's really hard to get construction firm to help small projects. So it, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of money. And from your point of view, do you think that it's even more difficult than you being a, like a woman? I could probably say that. You know, I definitely got treated differently when I was dealing with the construction crew that worked with me originally. They would definitely bully me, come in with like three big men with hard hats and I got called a bitch. And oh, wow. Yeah, I was there and I'm paying them, right? I was there every morning, you know, because they didn't have project managers and uh, I was trying to manage and it just, it got really difficult. So, I mean, yeah, I, it would be a lie if I said that I didn't have different 
if I didn't get treated differently because I was a woman, I started, I unfortunately started bringing my partner, who's a man who's like six, four and bring him in to every meeting. And I, that's the only way I felt like things were going to come. I know it's so sad, yeah. but wow. you know, that's life. <laughs> so looking back, do you think that you have done things differently or, you know, I, there's always people listening to the show and they are into maybe, um, you know, a story of that well, that they want to open a restaurant or they want to expand. So any advices that you have for even like a young woman, you know, chef that are contemplating opening a restaurant? If I was to say I wouldn't change anything, I that would be insane. Every day I would probably have changed something I would have done, whether it was, you know, making sure I looked over my plans better so there weren't change orders, whether, you know, maybe I wouldn't even have opened in San Francisco, who knows? Every, I think, process in my life, for sure, there's going to be an evolution from it. It's a constant word I use. I always want to grow. I always want to learn. I want to evolve. So yeah, I, I pretty much would always want to change a lot of the things that happen throughout the process of me opening the restaurant, for sure. And maybe bring your uh, boyfriend or yeah. a friend, a uh, guy <laughs> with the six uh, foot uh, four. And, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. With bring, you on meetings. <laughs> bring my bodyguard. But yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, you learn, it was my first time from start to finish opening up a restaurant. And so, you know, there's a big learning curve. And now I'm in the past few months, I have two different old cooks that I've had and sous chefs who are in the process of opening the restaurant. And I make sure to call them. I, you know, have them come to Nightbird. I'm like, here is all the information I know. Make sure you ask this, make sure you do this, get a lawyer, do this, all the things that weren't given to me to make their life easier. So yeah. <laughs> That you can guide them a bit. That's great. Exactly. <laughs> so if you had to, um, or if you are looking to open like even like a new concept, so would you still do it in San Francisco or maybe try to do it, you know, somewhere else? You know, we we just got approved for a loan and we were going to look for another building to buy and do a bar. And I don't know, I've been traveling a lot. I've been in LA, New York and Taipei in the last month. And I really think that it could be easier to open in LA, even though I'm not located there. But you know, you know, no, I, I love San Francisco. I've been here for 25 years. I don't want to totally crap on the city that you know, I own a house in, I own a business in, I love the community. I love Hayes Valley, the farmers, everything. Just the city, I wish that they could work with us small businesses a little bit better to make it easier. And not like handouts, like we're not asking for handouts, like Twitter got, you know, all the big companies don't have to pay certain taxes. We just want, you know, come by and, you know, help us up, clean up the streets, help do all the things that, you know, you say that you're supposed to do to make our life easier, get us through permitting faster, that kind of stuff. So talking about, you know, women in uh, in the kitchen, it seems that it's becoming easier for women, you know, to work in the kitchen in 2019. Do you think that women have access to the same opportunities still nowadays? I'd like to hope and think so that women have the same opportunities as of right now with all the movements that are going on, with all of the strong women who are in this business, all the voices. I mean, Dominique Crenn. Tracy Desjardins, Nancy Oakes, Melissa Perillo. I mean, there's Suzette Gresham. There's so many strong women chefs in San Francisco. They own their businesses. They run their businesses and they're teaching the next generation. So I like to think that people are looking at chefs now as a whole, not just as a woman chef and as a man chef, but as like, you know, someone who's talented and smart and can operate a business, whether you're a man or a woman. So I hope so. What still needs to, to happen, you know, in that um, topic, you know, from your point of view? You know, something that I dealt with as an issue and one of, you know, as I was saying, I'm, I'm helping one of my old sous chefs try to open a business and she's doing it with her other partner who is a woman as well. And 
it, it was really difficult finding investment as a woman. And I have been quoted saying this before. I even was told that, you know, my food was amazing. My business plan was amazing. My location was awesome, but they didn't want to invest in me because they were afraid I would get too emotional. <laughs> because oh because I was a woman. My, this is this is like I'm in the script from like the 50s. No, it's I know. like unbelievable or the 70s. I, to keep, it's oh, wow. And I had cooked a dinner for them, you know, as like here this is what we're going to offer at Nightbird. What do you think? And, you know, that's what a lot of chefs do when they're trying to get investment. And when he said that to me after the meal, I was in shock. I just, you know, thanked him and left and was just yeah, couldn't believe that that was said to me. It seemed like they just wanted a dinner at a cheap cost with a chef coming in their house and then that was his reasoning for not wanting to invest. But who knows? I, I, I never reached back out to him to ask what his thought process behind that was. Let's talk a bit about your um, concepts. So you have like a restaurant, which is Nightbird, which I've been there. It's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, decor, you know, a lot of natural elements, you know, the woods, the, I mean, the gray color and you have, you know, touch of colors as well. And, uh, and then you have, you know, the bar, which is a very small bar that I haven't been to. And I'm, I'm next time I'm going there, <laughs> <laughs> the Linden Room. Yes. So how would you describe both uh, concepts to uh, our listener? Well, when I was thinking about the space and what I wanted, I wanted a small bar, which is Linden is very small. I think there's four seats on one side, four seats on the other. You know, someplace you could just go before dinner and have a martini and then go have sit at the restaurant or come in as a neighbor and just have a nice cocktail, sit listen to some records, and then uh, go, you know, along your day. And then Nightbird is a tasting menu restaurant, which we kind of change the theme every I think when you came, it was colors. And uh, every different course was a color kind of in in the thought of pride. It was June, I think. And then right now it's a summer menu. And I'm about to go into a menu called F cancer because one of my girlfriends has been diagnosed. And I'm going to do a menu that's like all the all the foods that you should be eating to stay healthy and then donate to you know her so she can help get through it. Yeah. So we just try to have a theme and try to make it fun. And we've never reran a menu. So we kind of always try to come up with something new. Now, and how often do you change the tasting menu? I was traveling a lot last month. So it ran a little bit long, but like normally somewhere between two to three weeks is normally when we change menu. So a chef can leave a restaurant for three weeks. Were you nervous about like <laughs> leaving and going into all, you know, these different destinations, even like abroad and then leaving? Up? I'm sure you have a strong team, but still, it's probably being nervous about it. Yeah, I, I have actually never had never left a restaurant that much in the entirety of us being open. And I was actually short staffed. So I brought in some friends to help run the kitchen. But my girls, I have a full women kitchen. They are all very strong, very great. They've been with me for a while. And uh, they just held it down while I was in Taipei and New York and stuff. And but yeah, it was definitely I, it's it's a little nerve wracking. But you know, it's your it's your baby, and you leave, and you've never been gone before. It's definitely stressful. And everything went okay. As far as I know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> as good. far as I know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so you can plan your next trip then. Exactly. Exactly. So you're talking about tasting menu and which is interesting, I think, and intriguing for me. It's like they are themed tasting menus. And you you mentioned, you know, two of them. How are those ideas of themes, you know, coming about? 
obviously we grab information or uh, inspiration from the farmer's market. And so I base like a lot of things on what the fruits and the vegetables are going to look like at the market. And some things can be political. Like we did a sanctuary menu when the Muslim ban went in and we donated to causes or we just do a fun menu. Like at Christmas time, we did a Christmas story menu. So all of the courses were based on the movie, A Christmas Story. So we kind of just sit as a group, talk about things and base what kind of product is available right now. And then, you know, create from there. It's fun. So it starts, it starts with the produce then, or it starts with um, the, the theme. So like, for instance, you know, colors, that was the menu that I had the chance to, um, you know, to taste like three dishes uh, from. So where it starts, it starts like, like the, it was spring, of course. So, but you have the produce and then you decide then because of the availability of the produce and the choices that you have, then there's like a theme that jumps your mind or, or that could be the reverse. Because I'm guessing when you're talking about the one at Christmas, obviously, this is the theme Christmas, and then you have to do you know, something around it. <laughs> All sanctuary one, I would say, probably the same as well. I would say both things. Sometimes I come up with a theme that I just really want to do, and I bait, and I create around that. And then sometimes it's like, right now, it's our menu is just called It's Summer, because it's so summery and blooming at the farmer's market right now. So it's really just based on what the farmers have. So it, it goes back and forth. I'd say it's more theme driven because like, you know, we have summer for a couple months out of the year, winter for a couple months. So like after a couple of weeks, it's like, okay, I can't do a summer menu for three months. So then we start getting like, you know, a little bit more fun. Like it can be an, a tomato menu or, you know, a citrus menu or things along those lines too. So when you select the theme and, you know, some ingredients and so on, so how do you put together the different courses and, and, and your menus are, I mean, fantastic. It's like poetry. Oh, thank um, you. you know, I think the way how it's written and uh, the names of the dishes and, you know, the flow and everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm really curious how you put this together. I just really wanted something that was a little bit more lighthearted than, and like where you could come and sit and there aren't tablecloths and we're not too precious and the music might be a little bit louder, but you're still getting the refinement of food that you would get you know, in a, in a more upscale restaurant. So I think the theme adds a little bit of uh, fun to it. And there's a story, you know, you say a poetry and, you know, like how Dominique Crenn writes uh, poetry for her menus. I wanted like a, a story to translate. Some hold really special to my heart. Like I did a menu about my mom going blind and then how she was able to regain her vision near the end. She had a, a surgery. And so the, the menu kind of translated, it was very blurry and beige, and then all of a sudden bright colors, things you could eat with your hands. So a lot of times it just comes from the mood I'm in and where I'm at emotionally and just kind of comes from all different places. And in order for you to be able to execute exactly what comes into your mind, is it like critical to master, you know, the techniques first? And, and then after that, you can really explore you know, like a different, uh, let's say the space and your imaginations and the ingredients and so on? Yeah, you know, I think that for the most part, I mean, I'm definitely, like I said, I still learn every day. But most of the times when I'm applying a technique, it's something that I'm already familiar with or something that I've already practiced. And then I apply that technique to my idea. I've never like wanted an idea and then been like, let's try this technique I've never tried before. So yeah, we always try to make sure that the technique's mastered and then apply it to the the produce that's available and then hopefully it like goes in line with the uh, menu but yeah i always try to like utilize new you know when i was just in taipei i saw a lot of interesting new techniques when i was eating out and i 
after sitting there eating with my partner and being like, I wonder how we did that. And then kind of come back to the restaurant, play around a little bit and be like, okay, so I think this is how we did it. And, and then I put my own spin on it is normally how I, at least how I'm growing now as a chef, not just, you know, when you work under chefs, you learn everything. And then when you become a chef, you're like traveling and working with other peers. And, and that's how you kind of start your, your change. So how much traveling influence your creativity? Well, since like I hadn't really traveled a lot up until these last few months because I just was always at the restaurant. I mean, I think that travel, I really think that it needs to happen a lot more than I do. Probably hopefully more spread out next time. But uh, travel, you know, you get to kind of get out of your element when you're in the restaurant every day, your head's down, you're working a station, you're doing the same thing, you're seeing the same people, you kind of get a little a routine going. I mean, that's how you get consistency. So when you get taken out of that environment, and you go and you, you know, go to Dubai, and you get to see how they work with lamb brains, you're like, Oh, wow, maybe I could apply this to something in San Francisco. And And you start, you know, thinking outside of the box instead of just, okay, what you see every day at the farmer's market, because you're witnessing new ingredients and techniques and environments that change the way you think. So why Taipei? Because uh, I had a cook who was from Taipei and she was born there and was in the United States for a couple of years. She worked for me for a while and then moved back and just realized that, you know, Northern California style food would probably be really successful out there. So took us about a year. And when we finally were able to make it, we did a pop-up for a few days. And it was, it was pretty, uh, I think everyone really enjoyed it. And so we're in the talks of possibly going out there. Taipei's environment was very, I mean, obviously, it's very hot and humid, but it reminded me a lot of San Francisco, at least like the produce and a lot of the cooking that I witnessed out there. It was awesome. So what did you see that uh, had um, a tremendous impact, you know, um, on you from a food standpoint or inspiration standpoint? The produce was beautiful. The, going to the night markets, even though I would never probably have a fried blood or uh, octopus cheese balls on my menu, it was always interesting to go out there and try different taste profiles and get you know excited about something and see just how you know another part of the world eats. So it was inspiring. And then we went to a couple two and one Michelin star restaurants, which of course were beautiful, had great service, had amazing food, and. And uh, like I said, I kind of felt like I was in San Francisco. And do you have anything that um, you have seen there that you, you are bringing back uh, you, with you that you think that you can incorporate in some of your upcoming um, theme menu? I was in the kitchen most of the time. I wasn't able to see a ton, but at least like some of the markets I went to, I brought back some interesting peppers, brought back some interesting spices that I'm trying to kind of like implement in our menu now without it being too I never want to sway from what our voice is what our brand is but like little flavors going in and out like make a, a difference and bring some interestingness to to our menu so you're known not to be um always you know pushing you know boundaries and you know I listened to you talking and read a lot and uh, you said that you're always you know striving to get better that's great at your level, but I'm curious, how do you bring the rest of your team along, you know, with the passion that you have for perfection? So how do you keep them motivated? <laughs> well, I mean, it's definitely hard in San Francisco and I think all over the country right now to find staff. We you know we try to, I mean, from beyond even going into inspiration, just making sure that they have quality of life. You know, they come in around two o'clock so they can have their mornings, make sure we pay them so they can have a livable wage, offer 100% of health insurance. And then side by that, you know, obviously bringing in the best products, 
my cooks, even just last night, we were a little bit slower. So we do, in, you know, they can do their own dishes. So one of our cooks did a deep dish with mulberries and beets and mushrooms. And we all taste it and kind of, you know, give our opinions and work on it and edit it. I just took my whole staff to New York to cook at the James Beard house because I thought that that would be an exciting trip for them. We go to farms, go to wineries, do things. We, we're so small. There's only 12 of us all in. We try to just really like kind of be like a family. You know, you're talking about inspiring and motivating your, your team. And um, just want to know what, now who were your mentors and you know, what did you learn from them? I mean, I have a bunch. I always say Suzette Gresham. She's amazing. She, I was 19, I think, when I was in her kitchen um, in the 90s. She taught me base knowledge, uh, how to act. We've stayed in contact throughout our, my entirety of being in San Francisco. And she, I lean on her all the time, emotionally, professionally, and personally. Definitely, I mean, David Kinch, Jeremy Fox. My partner in life, Ron Boyd, is an inspiration. He was one of my chefs in the past. I, I mean, I have every... I'd say all my friends are uh, mentors and inspirers too, because when you're working in the kitchen, the chef's obviously an inspiration and teaches you a ton, but the person working to the side of you is the person who trains you a lot too, you know? So I'd like to think that in the end, everyone that I surround myself with is an inspiration and a mentor. And what best piece of advice, um, you know, they gave to you? Suzette, you know, always was just like, Keep your head down, keep your eyes wide open and, you know, work hard and it'll, it'll pay off. David Kinch definitely and Jeremy Fox definitely taught me about, you know, utilization and making sure to think outside the box and how can you make the radish as amazing as like a filet, you know, Ron definitely taught me a lot about business and how I can watch numbers and be creative at the same time. And then all taking the little bits from all of those people has kind of made me who I am now. So we are in uh, the summer. So what you know, flavors and ingredients and dishes that resonates you know with summer for you? Well, tomatoes. Right now, I have uh, heirloom tomatoes on my menu, which I only get from one farmer, just because she grows the best. And we are doing like a poached spot prawn that's been poached in a bay olive oil with a shrimp head sauce and a fermented cabbage packet, and it's really delicious. Uh, corn is, you know, corn's on my menu right now too, just with corn pudding, roasted corn, fermented corn, charred corn, and hula coche. Just making sure you utilize everything, make a corn cob stock, all the berries and fruits and stone fruit. We are doing a really beautiful apricot sorbet that's been infused with beeswax because we have an amazing beekeeper and we do a honey course and we try to utilize the beeswax. And summer is in full swing right now for us. <laughs> And you were talking before about uh, mulberry, and um, I have heard as well other chefs, you know, on the show uh, bringing mulberry on. So is it like more, I would say, trendy at the moment? Or why, why mulberry? I haven't heard about mulberry a lot in the past. You know, I think mulberries have, they're very particular. And like in the West Coast, they don't grow as much as like in like Virginia, from what I understand. I got mulberries a week ago, and they're already done this week by my farmer. So some farmers only have them for like a week or two weeks. So when you do have them, you want to like get them and utilize them the best that you can. Do you use it like in dessert or as well in savory dishes? Right now it's just being utilized on savory. On our physical menu right now, we do have uh, this fermented polenta and it's uh, called Bloody Butcher from this farm, Terra Farms. And we are putting 
raw and roasted mulberries on top of it. So there's like this nice acidity and a little bit of sweetness. They're also pretty expensive. <laughs> so because they are kind of so rare, they can only give them to so many chefs. So I was only able to get so many pints. So I can only use them on small amounts on my dishes right now. What are the, the um, latest ingredients, you know, that you are experimenting with or, you know, could almost talk about maybe an obsession at the moment, you know, on your end? I would definitely probably, I like a lot of chefs right now, but like I'm fermenting a lot of things. I just really love the acidity and umami that ferments bring to things. So whether it's fermented cabbage, fermented oats, fermented carrots, we take everything and then we could ferment carrots and then juice it and like utilize it as a sauce you know, to bring some acidity without having to add like a vinegar or lemon and salinity without having to add a ton of salt. So I really think that just by fermenting different products and utilizing their own natural, you know, sugars and starches is really interesting right now. So um, some processes that you, you know, that you are using, I mean, do you use um, a lot of, let's say, specific tools, you know, in, in your cooking, like sous vide, for instance, is it something a lot of other chefs are using or you would rather not, you know, play with uh, those type of, uh, let's say, tools and equipment? I mean, I definitely have circulators and we sous vide a lot of things, but I tend to only use it for certain things. I never like to really do it with meat. I like to kind of cook in the old school process. I like to braise in the um, old school so you get the juices. I will sous vide when it's appropriate, but like I don't, I want to still teach the cooks that I have now how to cook things properly and then they can apply those techniques with things like sous vide. If if we're just teaching people to put something in a bag, we're kind of not doing our due diligence in, t in training the people on how things have always been cooked. So I try to actually teach them like how to cook things, like how we cook meat. We kiss it on the stove and then we go in and out of the oven slowly. And so it's emulating what sous vide's like. Everyone who eats here always thinks our meat sous vide. And I'm always like, nope, we just cook it slow and low. We go in and out of the oven. We try to cook things, you know, the way that we were taught. So I only apply modern chemicals and sous vide techniques with things that really will benefit the product. If it's just to, I never do something just to do it or to make it easier. Okay. So do you have an example of uh, what you are using sous vide with? We have a poussin on the menu right now and we debone it, we re-roll it and I will sous vide it for about 30 minutes to kind of set the meat glue that we use inside of it so that it will stick together when we cook it. But we don't take it all the way. It's just to kind of set something, set the transglutamate. Or I will, in the bar, we sous vide a lot of uh, fruit with liquor, but we want to keep it at a regulated temperature so the alcohol doesn't cook off. So we'll sous vide plums right now with mezcal and hoa santa and, you know, to infuse that flavor, but not to lose the booze. If there's any ingredients that, uh, you know, that you are always working with that are really irreplaceable to you? Alliums, onions, shallots, garlic, all those things. I put them in almost everything just because I think that they, there's so much. You could do sweet, you could do bitter, you could do umami. There's just so many things that can come out from that family. Yeah. So I, yes, exactly. So I just definitely utilize them in a lot of things. Can you give us an example? Have you uh, worked with them as well in, uh, let's say, sweet application and, uh, and dessert dishes? I'm trying to think. I've definitely done. It's nothing that I think everyone on the menu, but I've done like a garlic ice cream before. I'd like to really make a burnt onion stocks. And I think I've made an, a burnt onion ice before and added it to a really like a sweet acidic sorbet. So it kind of had bitterness and sweetness. But for the most part, I, I want people to 
eat something and not be like, that's interesting. I want them to be like, that's delicious. So normally if someone saw onions in dessert, they're like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, there's limits for um, you know, in, there's in people. Limits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm always picking the brain of the chef that I have, you know, on the show and uh, trying to um think about like a, a dish um that's uh, people can you know maybe reproduce or do at home so uh, it's the summer and um you have beautiful you know salads on on your menu so i was thinking maybe asking you about a summer salad and what would be your suggestion for how people can prepare a summer salad at home and I would say giving a little bit of the Kim Alter fingerprint on it. You know, I will definitely go to the farmer's market so you can kind of pick out everything on your own. I really love grilled or seared little gems. And I uh, was just at the farmer's market this morning and grabbed some little gems. You can cut them in half, grill them or sear them on in your outside or inside on your stove. And then same with peaches, charring peaches. There's so much sugar in them. You could get a little bit of char to give like a bitter sweetness and then just like a charred peach salad mash up some of those peaches as the vinaigrette with a little bit of lemon juice super simple and like get some burrata from the cheese monger and uh, just like a burrata grilled little gem with some like charred and pickled peaches would i think be really refreshing and very summery i mean you're talking about um, a burrata and so what would be the best location best place to um you know to buy very good burrata well, in San Francisco, definitely we go to the Ferry Building all the time and there's Cowgirl Creamery. And I mean, but Whole Foods even, like uh, we have Rainbow and just getting a really pretty burrata from Italy. And just I, with products that are, you know, kind of perfect as they are, taking it out, cutting it in half, a little bit of salt, pepper and olive oil, and it's perfect, you know? That's why I think it's so easy to cook at home and so many people don't. And I don't understand why, because you can literally just take it out of the package, cut it in half, put some salt on it, and you're good. You could do that with some tomatoes and balsamic. And, you, you know, there's a really healthy, delicious salad for a hot night. I think that you need to buy the quality products and quality products cost money because they're artisan and they're coming from the best cows, you know, and that cheese is you know, made by someone who spent their whole life making it. So sometimes spending that extra $2 is going to change the entire salad because it's just cheese, you know, and getting the, the tomato from the farmer's market and cutting it in half, it might be a dollar more than you would get at Safeway, but it's going to be this beautiful tomato and you're paying for the quality. So I think buying the best ingredients is number one when you're doing something simple. So go to your local farmer's markets. And that's very important. Yes. So when you are not in your restaurant or prepping some of the, um, let's say, recipes and product for uh, your partner at the bar or thinking about like a new menu inspiration, I think that you are as well spending some time to uh, selling your service in terms of, you know, chef and consultancy, right? You're doing some consultancy work. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? If someone wants to get some inspiration or work with work with you? Yeah, we, we kind of consult across the board. I just spoke with a company today that's looking for some R&D. So R&D is always really fun because, well, we want to align ourselves with companies that think alike. So this company that we spoke with is a very, you know, trying to utilize waste and turn it into something delicious. And we are going to hopefully come in and be able to create some products to get people inspired to use their product. 
We've also consulted on restaurants when their maybe their numbers aren't in line, or maybe they just need a little bit of you know inspiration in the kitchen, and we can come back and kind of like put a couple of dishes on, and you know get the staff like thinking about new ways. And we've done things where there it's like a month or a year of coming in and just kind of changing things. But I think across the board, it, it gets again, it's kind of getting you out of our me out of my comfort zone of being in the kitchen and going into another place and using my brain to think outside of the box and make something new and exciting. And that again, gets me thinking about my restaurant as well. So it's always nice to kind of be in someone else's kitchen for a minute or being a, a company that's trying to create something new that's going to help the world. And I like to be a part of that. So you're talking about, you know, waste, which is a very important, obviously, topic and sustainability, you know, nowadays. Um, what do you think about uh, the movement that uh, Chef Dominique Crane created with uh, Wake Up? I mean, I, I was actually at that discussion and I, I unfortunately didn't get to hear hers because I was cooking for it. But she's got such a loud voice right now and people are paying attention to her. So the fact that she's using it for good, I think is amazing. I think that chefs have more of a voice now than they ever had, whether that's because of TV or because of, you know, the celebrityism of it. And the fact that we're trying to use our voice for good, whether that's sustainability, climate change, you know, snap, making, you know, feeding the feeding kids, all these things that we can bring attention to is good. So I support 100% anyone who wants to do that. It's important. Absolutely. And what, what are you doing at the level of uh, your restaurant when it comes to waste? Any things that you're doing, uh, you know, with uh, byproducts or you know, that what would be considered byproduct in the past, but in fact that you are integrating into, um, into your recipe and your dishes? So we do 10 courses at Nightbird and we have five what we call kind of proper courses and five what we call reflection courses. And those reflections are normally used, I don't want to say the byproduct, but product that we are trying to edit and not put on the plate or like I, I was telling you about the tomato and spot prawn dish. So the reflection course after that is a spot prawn broth. And then we took some burnt onion broth and then used some uh, burnt rice broth and then made a cracker out of the rice. And then so we're serving a warm broth of used shells and onion skins that would normally be thrown away and make it into something delicious for someone to drink after uh, they had that first course before they go into their next. So we try to really utilize everything. Even like when we juice things, we turn the pulp into something. Like I was saying, we ferment carrots and we juice them. We then take that pulp and we turned it into a miso. Then we dehydrated it and made it into a salt to sprinkle on top of a cracker. So all these things are constant like thoughts in our heads of how we can utilize something that would be thrown away. And, and you call them reflection courses, correct? So what, why yes. this, what this name? It's going to mimic something that you just ate. And it's also a time to kind of like reflect on what you just ate and what you are eating. And like, if people are interested in our theory and talking about the whole sustainability side, and I don't want to bang, you know, people's heads with like education when they're trying to enjoy like a anniversary meal. But if someone wants to sit there and talk about it, like we're super open to being like, yeah, this is our thought process. And this is what we're trying to do to like make our carbon footprint and our waste like better than other people's. I mean, Chef, thank you so much for for your time. And I want to finish the um, the interview with, uh, in fact, five rapid fire questions. So uh, you're ready for them? Okay. Uh oh. <laughs> so, so no, that's fine. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what is uh, Kim Alter' favorite guilty pleasure food. 
guilty pleasure food. I mean, lately it's been dumplings and dumplings, I guess it's guilty because I'm trying not to eat gluten right now. So like if I can just eat like a bowl of dumplings, I'm super excited. Okay. I don't know if it's a guilty or not. (laughs) For me, it is. Can you give me three dishes that you could not live without cooking or eating? A a noodle dish for sure. Cause like, I just love noodles, whether it's pasta, just very simple butter and garlic or like uh, rice noodles from a Thai restaurant. Also just like brown rice and kimchi. I could eat brown rice, kimchi and vegetables every day. And then probably, I mean, I love ice cream. So it would probably be those three things that I couldn't live without. And I always kind of like, whether it's family meal or something on my menu, I love the texture and uh, temperature of ice cream. I love the, again, texture of noodles and just they're so they're calming to me. They, you know, they're my comfort food. Okay. So you're talking about ice cream. I have to ask you, yeah, what, what flavor are in ice cream? At the restaurant right now, we have a marshmallow ice cream on the menu because it's kind of like a play on s'mores. But at my house, my mom was just busy and she start, she's can't eat dairy right now. So she brought this like dairy-free bananas foster and I'm like addicted to it now. So it's like a cashew milk chocolate caramel. So I, I'm still calling it ice cream, but it's kind of like fake, but it's delicious. <laughs> okay. So you and I are going on a little flavors unknown tasting trek in San Francisco. Which are the five places that you will take me to? If you've never been here, I would definitely go to Anchor, which is this cute little oyster fish house in the Castro. It's very small. I think maybe 20 seats and you can just get a bowl of clams and some shrimp. It's delicious. I like old steakhouses. So I mean, House of Prime Rib like would be someplace I would take somebody because it's always the same and it's delicious. You can get a martini and a steak and it's great. Tin Cow, I think is I had such a good meal there a few weeks ago. Tim is great. Megan is great. And like their food, they're getting quality ingredients from the farmer's market and putting it on the plate with like their heritage. I think it's awesome. For on the fancier version, I, Avery, I think is doing, Rodney is doing great things. He's an awesome chef. Uh, it's a little tasty menu restaurant over on the Fillmore. So I think it's like, that's kind of a really nice, I think that's four restaurants right now, but you got some history, some ethnic, some fancy. And the fifth place, yeah, if someone had never been there, I'd definitely go to the, the ferry building just because you have Cowgirl, you have Hog Island Oysters, you have so many different things that you can, uh, Brown Sugar Kitchen, you can get so many different things in one spot, I think is a good place to go. So are you into cookbooks? Are you reading, you know, them? Yes, so, yes, 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 yes. So what are the... Well, my mom's a librarian, so books have always uh, been super important absolutely. in my life. And whether it's collecting first edition cookbooks or you know, all the fancy new beautiful cookbooks. It's a constant with me. We have a library at our house and then we have a, you know, a whole two, a couple shelves in the restaurant books as well. Great. So what are the top three cookbooks that inspired you the most? Ones that I always go to that have probably the most stains on are normally bread books, fermentation books, and pastry, because I've always kind of done my own pastries. We make our own bread and then we ferment a lot of things. It's not my strong background in the sense like I wasn't professionally trained just in bread or just in pastry. So I always go back to like the uh, art of fermentation, bread, and then the elements of dessert because like you can just start seeing the technique and then you apply your own technique to it. So those would be the three kind of books that I always go to the most. So you've been to uh, culinary school, correct? Well, cooking school. Yes. So... What is one rule that you have learned in cooking school that every home cook should know? And I mean, I don't know if I learned it in cooking school or like working 
the, you know, while I was in school. But something that I think is really important that a lot of people don't do is in meat cookery is letting meat rest. So many people just want to like, you know, slice right into it. And that is just going to ruin this piece of meat that you took all this time to cook properly. So definitely resting your meat is something I'm always like very, I take meat cooking very seriously. And when I'm training people, I'm always like, it's all about the rest. Okay. So when you're talking resting, so for a can like a home cook that I've maybe no idea and then uh, saying like, okay, what do you mean? How long? Well, I mean, it definitely would vary, but like at least, you know, five minutes of like letting the meat just sit there. And then all the juices kind of, you know, when you're, it's when heat's applying, all the juices are kind of like flowing. And if you were to cut it, all of the juices would come out, which would leave you with a dry piece of meat. But if you keep it all locked up, everything kind of settles back into the muscle. So then when you slice all that juices in the meat that you're going to, you know, you'll taste instead of it being on your cutting board. Okay. And this applies to uh, barbecue as well, correct? I, yeah, all meat, chicken, meat, all things. Okay, pork. cool. Chef, thank you so much. I really appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, you could allocate, um, you know, almost an hour talking uh, with me and it was great to have you on, on the show. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. Thank you for listening today. It was great to have Chef Kim Alter from Nightbird in San Francisco, you know, as a guest on the show. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation. And if you did, please make sure to share this episode with other chefs or any of your foodie friends. You can share it directly from the phone or you can go on the website flavorsunknown.com. Remember to subscribe to the show and please, please leave a review and a rating. In two weeks, it will be, in fact, the one-year episode for the show Flavors Unknown. I cannot believe that I reached um, one year of doing this podcast. And it will be a special episode. At this time, the role will be reversed. As one of my friends mentioned that it would be great that someone interviews me. So my good friend Kate, known as well as Intoxicate Foodies on Instagram, will be interviewing me. So if you want to learn a bit more about the hosts of the show, then um, you know, listen to the upcoming episode that will be number 27. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.